Let's have a look at Matthew's Gospel, um, chapter 19, starting at verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or wife, or children or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The next reading from um, Hebrews, and we're going to start at chapter 11. And starting at verse 1, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
and by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so for this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, the book of Hebrews is meat, not milk. And so we pray that you'll feed us, nourish us, and sustain us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Marathon runner Stephen, John Stephen Aquari was sent to the 1968 Mexico Olympics by Tanzania. About halfway through the marathon, about 19 kilometres, he fell dislocating his knee joint, and he finished last, arriving at a largely empty stadium. When he was asked why he didn't give up, he famously replied, my country did not send me to start the race, they sent me to finish the race. And Bible teachers like me have been making hay on this illustration for 50 or more years. I found footage this week of the man at the finish line, there's no sound, but it's poignant. As Jesus said, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. This is an aquari state of mind. In our text over the next two weeks, the writer of Hebrews likens the Christian journey to a race, a marathon perhaps, this is a new idea in the book of Hebrews. It is the next step in the book, although the author remains on message. The race is mentioned in our text for next week, chapter 12, verse 2, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, and chapters 11, or chapter 11 lists your fellow runners, women and men of old, what he calls the ancients, and we listen to their stories. We don't tear down their statues, we listen to their sto stories of old. And you'll find that your fellow runners aren't in competition with you, but rather they are your allies, your heroes. In fact, those who have already finished their race, they are of old, they cheer you on, since the ultimate race is not concluded until the resurrection. You'll learn that next week, as Jesus himself said, at the renewal of all things. He calls these men and women of old a great cloud of witnesses. You see that? 
and they surround us like in the stands. Not literally, it's their stories that cheer us on. But don't stare at the stands, you'll get distracted. Imagine if they did that last night. Rather, fix your eyes, says the writer, on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, I've done an unofficial marathon. This is my marathon in a COVID lockdown, and it wasn't pretty. Marathons rarely are. I hobbled the last 10 kilometres. But one of the great things about these two passages, this week and next, is that they tell us who we can look to as we run the race and how it's done, who's bossed it before us and how they bossed it. And you'll find out if you read the Old Testament, the Christian life is rarely, or the life of faith, is rarely pretty. And yet finishing the race appears to be a challenge for many. People get bumped off the track all the time and you'll know people who have given up the faith themselves. It's not easy to watch it happen. And I believe that this will become increasingly common. I'm not a prophet nor a prophet's son. I've not consulted God on the matter, as I don't know. But I suspect we'll see a winnowing ahead of a revival. I hope not. But I suspect we'll see a winnowing in the West ahead of a revival. Why? Because I think it's harder for a young person to claim faith now than it was for us who are older. And some well-known people have given up on Jesus and have made it very public, and more will be tempted to follow their examples. Now, if you go online to chase this stuff, and I don't recommend it, you'll find two words together regularly, the word deconstruction and the word exvangelical. They made that word up, the second one. Deconstruction is the practice of re-examining previous beliefs and ultimately rejecting them, or maybe in order to reject them. And exvangelical is the name used by those who have deconstructed from their previous evangelical beliefs. They use the word for themselves. Now, in the last 10 years, there's been quite a few deconstructionists, high-profile Christians, pastors, worship pastors, who've decided to part ways with their faith, citing doubts, disillusionment, the culture wars is big, unanswered questions, science, capital S. Now, I believe in the past, they didn't have a platform to speak or they didn't want one. They talked privately, since it was a private choice. And I suspect that many people who gave up the faith honestly didn't want others to lose theirs. I mean, faith is so precious. And they were like, you know what, I, I'm, I can't, but maybe others can. I believe the rise of TikTok and other platforms have, has changed that. Now they have a platform to tell their story, social media, and they're willing to tell it. And it often comes out as a story. Once upon a time, I used to believe A, B, and C, but then I asked some questions that no one has ever asked. I wasn't heard, but rather shut down. That might have been true. But now I think X, Y, and Z. People who would be happy for me to name them, they're sort of out there, are Joshua Harris, a pastor and author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He's tried an online course to help others to give up their faith. 
it's called a deconstruction starter pack, and it costs, it'll set you back $275. I love America. <laughs> and Abraham Piper, the son of preacher John Piper, who has millions and millions of followers on his TikTok channel and has a lot of fun sending up his past and Christians in the present. And cheering on in the sidelines is their great cloud of witnesses, I think the old atheist crowd. I am currently one third of my way through Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. I'll report back soon. Now, I believe there'll be more people like this in the future, and it won't be hard to find them because they are, after all, influencers. The recipients of the message we call Hebrews were also in danger of deconstructing their faith if they had such a notion, but not for sort of Western soft, softer reasons, but for persecution. Hebrews were written to people with prison sentences and the confiscation of their property in line. They were tired of standing out as a Christian, suffering for remaining one, and tempted to go back to something less noticeable, less demanding, back to the Torah with its respectability and not to faith in Jesus with its apparent divisiveness. So what can we learn? Let's go back to the track. Four things in your outline. I'm going to talk about the track or the context of chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Then I want to talk about the challenge, the hall of fame, cloud of witnesses, and the right mind needed. The track, the challenge, the hall of fame, and the right mind. So the context of chapter 11 is chapter 10, verses 36 to 39, that you have open in front of you. Chapter 11, of course, is a chapter about faith, non-stop, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, as if it wasn't obvious. And it is about the connection between faith and a hope-driven endurance. But this idea has not been plucked out of nowhere. It comes from chapter 10, verse 36. You, you need to persevere it so that when you've done the will of God, you'll have, you will receive what he has promised. So what resource will you need to persevere? Well, to answer this, the writer alludes to the life of the prophet Habakkuk, who in his day was flying blind in a world going to pot, the whole thing falling in around him. And God even says it's going to get worse before it gets better. The reason you need to persevere in Habakkuk is that God is coming in all the muck, in all the injustice, just wait. God will put the wall to rights, Hebrews 10.37. And since he's coming, you'll need to trust that he will, unlike Babylonian thinking, which is puffed up here and now, might is right. Rather, verse 38, my righteous one will live by faith. That is, they'll not shrink back. Faith is the resource you'll need. It's often said that to be a Christian, you'll need what's called blind faith. Now, besides being cruel to those with impaired sight, it's not what faith is. Not, not what faith is, not outlined or defined or demonstrated in the Bible. And let me pause this out. Stay with me. Blind faith is interpreted as believing in something broadly silly. And even though you know it's silly, you'll believe it anyway against all evidence of logic, capital L, and science, capital S. That is, your faith itself is blind. Richard Dawkins basically says this. But it's more accurate to say that faith is trusting in another, even in a blind spot, 
even when the circumstances all around you look deeply worrying. Habakkuk's word is the context of Hebrews 11. The faith is not blind, but his circumstance make things hard to see. So that's the track. Secondly, the challenge then is to live by faith. Chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, but don't yet have, assurance about what we do not see and cannot see yet. And so there is a risk in faith. It's not about the here and now. Now you could write a PhD on chapter 11, verse 1. I'm sure people have. Faith here is confidence, leaning forward. It's assurance, even when flying blind. It trusts and it stays. Scholars argue if the confidence here is subjective, whether you feel confident, or whether it's an objective confidence, that is, you are on solid ground. I believe the latter. The context tells you that this is not any confidence in anything you hope for, assurance about everything you do not yet see but hope to see. That will be called blind optimism. You can see how people uninterested in context, in truly reading the Word of God, but reading it through the lens of their own desires, might look at a verse like that and think, well, that's a reason to start my business. No, here you trust God who kept his word to Habakkuk. You trust God who kept his word to Abraham. There's a reason to believe, even if you're sort of flying blind in the moment. And you trust that God has secured your future. Go down to verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country. Right, this better country, this better hope. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a future. This is a hope-fueled endurance. So why is it a challenge? Well, remember Habakkuk, you've got to trust God as you lean into that future, even if the circumstances around you are blind. Habakkuk 3.17, famously, though the fig tree does not blossom, there's no fruit on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields yield no food. In other words, around you in the moment, no evidence of the promises of God of old. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He makes me go to the heights. <laughs> now, the recipient, recipients of this letter are staring down prison terms, confiscation of property, embarrassment, loss of reputation, and eventually perhaps even death. So they'll need some concrete stories, and you will too, examples to keep going, and that's what chapter 11 is all about. Our great cloud of witnesses, our cheer squad, this is what the ancients, faith is what the ancients were commended for. So thirdly, you'll need the Hall of Fame verses 2 to 12. He writes, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see, not yet. This is what the ancients were commended for. You might say to yourself, but I'd like to see it in the next two years or ten years. I'd like to see it before I die. But the ancients were commended by faith even. We'll come to that. You've got the list in chapter 11. It goes on and on and on, by faith, by faith. Giant after giant, women and men, 
young and old, winners and losers, all trusting God right to the end, even though it was hard, and they showed something about their hearts by doing so. I'm reminded of these words in the Book of Common Prayer that this congregation probably should say more often in a prayer. And we also bless thy holy name, O God, for all thy servants who have departed this life in thy faith and fear, people who've already died, beseeching thee to grant us grace so to follow their good examples that with them we may be partakers of thy heavenly kingdom. It's hard on to think that Thomas Cramner was looking at Hebrews 11 when he wrote those words. But he starts at the very beginning, and he starts with us, not those others. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen, everything, was not made out of what was visible. There's a first cause, uh, a beginning of it all. Such an interesting verse, and those of you who are scientists among us, I'd love your, your take on this verse. But it begins to answer the question, why is there something and not nothing? That's a famous question. Why is there something and not nothing? If you only believe in the scientific method or scientific discovery, and I believe in those two things, but if you only believe in them, if you only have a microscope and a spreadsheet, you won't find God. Not because he's hard to find conveniently, but rather because he is the ground of all being, the author of life, the prime cause. He is not part of creation to find him. That's paganism. You'll never meet Shakespeare as a character in his plays, even if his clues, Shakespeare's clues, are all over the narrative. The famous British mathematician Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say to explain his atheism if God were ever to confront him after death, and he replied, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Well, I think that existence is a pretty big clue, but it's because of faith that we know that God formed the universe by his word, meaning we trust that Genesis 1 is a word from God, let there be light, and there was light. Why is there something and not nothing? And the answer is because God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. And let's be quick now, because he mentions five people in our text more next week. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. After creation, we skip Adam and Eve. Maybe it's because they live by sight. They saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and good for food. And so we're taken to Genesis 4 to Abel. And somehow his trusting God meant he chose the better offering. Something in his heart was pure, but perhaps it's because he died that he's listed here, so mercilessly by his brother. And he still speaks, verse 4, even though he's dead, as he did speak in Genesis 4, verse 10, when God said to his murderer, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now, this time, his voice is an example of faith, not of deep injustice. Then... Enoch, verse 5, who walked with God and was no more. He's commended as a person of faith, which perhaps is important because of the general demise of faith in Genesis 1 through 11. He stood out and he walked with God. 
And then the conclusion of Abel and Enoch is in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You can't please a personal God with mere ethics. That's Immanuel Kant, not the God of the Bible. In other words, you can't just be a good person. God is personal, and the right verb for belief is to walk with him. And there are two things you must know. A, he exists, he is, and B, he notices. He rewards those who earnestly seek him, which is Abel, not Cain, and Enoch, not the world around him. So they're in the Hall of Fame. Tough lives. Stayed standing. Then the three big ones, they're much clearer why. Verse 7, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, by faith, he built an ark to save his family. He couldn't see the flood coming. He was just told it was coming. There were things not yet seen, but out in the desert, there he is building a boat. His faith is almost humorous in the story. A boat in the desert, inland. But he built an ark despite the jeers of his peers, so he's in the Hall of Fame. Abraham, more on this next week. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Right? The circumstances were blind. And verse 9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did his son Isaac, And Jacob, long after Abraham dies, all living in tents, they were all heirs with him of the same promise. He didn't see the land God had promised, but he went anyways. And when he got there, he was in a tent as a stranger, as was his child and grandchild. But he leant forward, hope-fueled endurance. Why? Verse 10, because something deep down, it's called faith, looking for, forward, to the city with foundations, the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In the end, he wasn't just looking for Jerusalem, which would be the end result of Abraham's faith, but somehow he knew that there was something bigger than anything you can find on earth now. And so he's in the Hall of Fame. And so is Sarah. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. He trusted God. Despite being, what was she, 75? I mean, there's a, there's a miracle involved in that promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore, the very thing promised to Abraham. Sarah's beautiful because at first she laughed at the promises of God, <laughs> the, the things unseen. In other words, her marathon was wobbly, as was Abraham's. But she gave birth in her old age, and she called the child Isaac, which means laughter. Right? There's a real redemption of her previous wobbly faith. And so she's in the Hall of Fame. Now, what does this mean? What do you learn? Well, A, faith is not just the correct response to the finished work of Christ so that you can be justified by faith, the state of being right with God. 
Rather, faith here is a daily walk with God, a life lived over a lifetime. My hope is in you all day long. We said that a moment ago in Psalm, however we started the service, 25. So that's firstly, it's a daily walk with God. Secondly, faith here is being set up as an alternative to the crumbling world around you. One author wrote this, the stories in chapter 11 provide an alternative society that counters the baleful influence of the unbelieving world in which the hearers live. And they are grist for the mill for our faith in a difficult world. So you'll need the right mind. You'll need the right mind. Verses 13 through 16 give you the right mind. One that believes that God has a stunning future for you. He's promised it. This is why faith and hope are interchangeable in Hebrews 11. My faith and my hope are in God, Psalm 25. But what these men and women had in common, there's more women next week, is in verse 13. Every single one of them was still living by faith when they died. Now, sorry, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, I'll believe... Uh, as long as I get it in two to ten years, the thing I want. They were all still living by faith when they died. They died without getting the thing promised. They were leaning forward into resurrection without even understanding it. It's right there in verse 13. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Their minds were not wedded to the present, mortgages and the like. And so they could endure enormous suffering, knowing that somehow death itself didn't separate them from the promises of God by faith. Karl Marx, by the way, hated this about Christians because it meant that they could endure suffering over time. And they changed the world over time, but Marx wanted the uprising now. And so he had to destroy faith. It was too helpful to someone suffering, the opiate of the masses deadened their senses to revolution. People who think and act like this show something of their heart. It's a diagnostic tool, verse 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, a real home. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return, to deconstruct but they don't look back. They don't put their hand to the plow and look back. They don't do what Lot's wife did. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do not lose sight of what is unseen but promised. That's what's happening to the deconstructionists. That's what's happening to the ex-evangelicals. I'll tell you what, here's what we need, right here. An acquiry state of mind with respect to faith. Wobbly halfway, sure. And yet he finishes the race set before him. Next week, we'll explore more what this looks like.
Shall we pray? Jesus said, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man comes, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And so here this morning in this life, this complicated experience that each of us are in, this possibility of wobbly faith as we run the race marked out for us, we pray that we would lean forward in the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would have a hope-fueled endurance to the end that we'll be able to say even on our deathbed that we believe, that we trust. And we pray that we'd fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we'd say even in the blind circumstances we're in, that we'd say, Lord, I need you. Um, I need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.